Welcome to the After Talk at Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. This is where we get to drop the formality of our program, and I get to sit down with my producer, Blake, to crack open a beer, do a little Q&A, and have a discussion about this week's episode. In the future, we'll be checking our email and seeing if you, our listeners, have sent us any questions or comments, and we can address those here as well. from your your presentation that you did at Fisk Planetarium. Yeah, I did a presentation called uh, When E.T. Calls, which is the title of this episode. Did you have an opportunity to talk to people afterwards to see what their thoughts were on, on extraterrestrial life and, and aliens and things like that? Well, it's obviously a popular uh, conversation topic at the planetarium in general, I don't think there were a lot of, interestingly, there weren't a lot of questions about aliens when I gave that uh, particular presentation with a lot of this material, but you did have uh, some people asking about the Voyager space probes, which, you know, that that's a whole other area, I think, of space science that really captivates people. Okay. I, I feel like every day we, we have new releases about new information that's coming through, uh, scientifically speaking. They keep reordering string theory and, and, and how to put quantum mechanics and, and our traditional physics together to make it so there's a unified theory. And um, it seems like as, as they're making steps in that domain, it's allowing them to be able to reach out and communicate out to the world in more effective ways. That's another, I think, question that people have sort of posed is we, we talked, uh, or at least I talked so much about radio signals being a means of communication, but there have been some astronomers, some scientists who say, hey, you know, maybe a, an alien race millions of years more advanced than us would consider radio signals to be, you know, as primitive as chiseling on a, a clay tablet that, you know, nobody, nobody uh, out in outer space is using that as a, an effective form of communication. And we think of today getting into, you know, you mentioned quantum physics, you know, just the abilities of a quantum computer are so uh, vastly in excess of anything, I think, that computer scientists could have imagined uh, 50 or 60 years ago. Right. The other thing that was really interesting is you mentioned the War of the Worlds broadcast and kind of coming up with really hot off the press current events, but like there was a, a uh, an alert that was sent out in Hawaii for like people to shelter in place and you saw a lot of the same kinds of stuff that you were seeing of people it wasn't all over America like it was advertised but there were certain regions where people were very closely tied to their radio where there was mass panic um, and you, you saw something very similar to this as, as what happened in, in uh, Hawaii yeah no that that's actually a, a fascinating analogy uh, to use, and especially because geographically, um, Hawaii—it's a pretty big state, you know. So there, there's—I I would imagine there were a lot of people uh, absolutely horrified, and uh, 
you know, I think I mentioned in my little presentation that human beings are emotional creatures, and when you're in a heightened state of emotion, you don't uh, you don't think about things as analytically and objectively as you would otherwise. Uh, one of the interesting things I once read about the War of the Worlds radio broadcast is that people uh, were so agitated. People who had heard you know the broadcast, they looked out their windows that night, and people who saw no cars on the road said. My God, everyone's already evacuated, and I'm 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 the last person stuck here. And then you had other people who looked out their windows and saw cars driving on the road and said, "Oh my gosh, the evacuation has started already." You know, so the, just the things that were reinforcing that sort of emotional bias and panic. Yeah, well, and it's 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 a fascinating way to look at like how you observe life given a certain criteria. It, I mean, it it kind of leads into the understanding of uh, like. I, th- I forget the exact year it was, but there was a, I think it was in the 70s or 80s that there was a fuel uh, downturn. Yeah, in, 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 um, yeah in, the, in the 70s. The 70s. Uh, o- the OPEC oil embargo, I guess, would be the, the event. And and I don't think people needed oil any more than on, in that time period, any more than what they probably need on a day-to-day basis, but simply by hearing that there was a shortage of oil you had these gigantic long lines of people trying to get fuel uh before anybody else and it's just it that lays more into uh like how humanity is so reliant on what they think is going on in their environment same thing uh after 9-11 um there were there were long fuel lines because people had assumptions i remember my my mom we like drove to the gas station and there were there were fuel lines like there were back in the 70s yeah and in september 11th too that wasn't that's not so far removed historically just only a few decades from the uh, opec oil embargo um i think this is a little bit bleak but i think in some ways our society is a little bit more fragile than people would like to uh admit and that we you know we panic very easily we get paranoid very easily and you think of uh I had a conversation with someone the other day of just just the way society would react if we didn't have internet on our phones and computers for 24 hours and how catastrophic that would be. And that's arguably not as, as it could be more pragmatic than having a, a vehicle with a full gas tank. Well, all it would take is just one EMP blast over, and an EMP blast is essentially a nuclear blast above the, the surface of the ground. And that would cause such a shock that it would uh, basically buzz out all the electronics that are in America or wherever the the bomb goes off. And uh, there's really nothing that you can do to, like, prevent against that. Um, I I should know this from a standpoint of science, but can you have an uh, EMP stands for electromagnetic pulse. Right. So you don't necessarily even need a nuclear explosion in order for an EMP... uh, that I'm not sure of if it can just be like a traditional bomb that would cause an EMP blast. Yeah. Um, I've o- I've only ever known it to be in the context of a nuclear. Sure. Yeah, explosion. and that, that's probably the most common. Um, but I, I mean, I would I don't know. I wonder if there's that that's something I'm, we'll need to do research into and then talk about on the next time we're we're talking about this because it is interesting to know if it is completely and, and it's relegated only for a nuclear weapon to cause an EMP blast. Right. Um, 
So I, I getting into um, what the actual episode is about, um, which it's kind of I was trying to lead us down this way with bring up War of the Worlds. Um, I just I don't know. I don't know. There's there's lots of discussions about could humanity handle the understanding that they are not the only ones in the universe. I think there's an argument to be made that we would adapt, and you know you talk about string theory or unification theory, you know, just in the last 100 years of human history, there have been a lot of discoveries that I think people from previous generations, previous uh, eras in history would would see as very shocking. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you you go back far enough and people were very skeptical of the train. Like, is it safe to ride on a train? Can the human body withstand speeds in excess of 30 or 40 miles per hour? You know, a lot of, a lot of things that seem silly to us today, mm-hmm. uh, but it was just us trying to digest that, that new information. And I think, I think human beings are adaptable in that regard, but it doesn't mean that, you know, there, there could be a learning curve. There could be a period of time where we're adjusting to that news in the same way that uh, when the the nuclear age, you know, and the invention of the atomic bomb, that was something that we adjusted to, and now we kind of all accept that we live in a world with nuclear weapons. Uh, but in the you know the late '40s, early 1950s, or during the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, in the early '60s, uh, there were some very terrifying days where human beings were struggling with how to uh, how to deal with incorporating this knowledge into their day to day lives. Well, and, and humans are are very tribal. So that that's the the interesting thing about the idea of of there being another set of beings. I mean, when well, the report from the Brookings Institute said that it, it it might be a positive effect learning that you know extraterrestrials existed because it might uh, give human beings a greater sense of unity in the sense that this is our planet, this is our tribe, this is our species, and you know we, we need to stand strong against any potential threat from elsewhere right but i mean you look at how things are already within humans thoughts about each other it's that like racism is though we thought it was over and i think a lot of people thought that that had been or at least on the decline i think people yeah. thought it was it was on the decline just a, a weird time to be alive <laughs> yeah definitely and i i I'm just now realizing the political implications of uh, this discussion, even though it's not a podcast on politics. Right, right. Um, but politics would undeniably uh, play a role. You know, that's the filter through which so much of the information that we receive is passing through. Right. And I think the, you know, the, the disturbing thing, again, not to get too political, uh, but even science itself is something that passes through a political lens, particularly when you're talking about politically charged uh, issues like uh, climate change. So, the other thing that I thought was profound, and I've I've heard more from him um, by just happenstance the last few days, but H. E. Wells is a very prolific and very profound writer for the times that that, that like he kind of projected a lot of the things that we're seeing currently. Yeah, I would say that I'm a huge fan of H.G. Wells, and a lot of people lump H.G. Wells and Jules Verne together because they were both, um, I think, undeniably ahead of their time as science fiction authors, but they said that uh, Jules Verne had these really fantastic ideas, but the science there, he didn't have uh, a profound understanding of science, that it was kind of just a plot device, just a means to an end, 
Whereas H.G. Wells was someone who knew science and studied science and worked as hard as he could to uh, incorporate that into uh, into a lot of uh, his work. And uh, one of the things that I didn't mention during the presentation is that in some ways politics also affected H.G. Wells' perception of uh, the events of his own time and that uh, War of the Worlds, he thought a lot about um, European colonialism and how it was a time in history where European countries were not hesitating to subjugate the indigenous populations of uh, regions all around the world. And that was what H.G. Wells was thinking. Well, if, if there are people on other planets and they decide to come here, they'll probably treat us just as badly as us Europeans are treating some of the indigenous populations of a lot of these different parts of the world. Right. Um you brought up Blum Blumrick? Yeah. Can you give me more information? Because it's very fascinating to think of a person that was going through and reading, not texts that were older than the Bible, it, uh, it sounds like, and deriving these extraterrestrial... Yeah, um, it's it's the Jewish Torah. So, that you know, it's technically the uh, Old Testament of the Bible, but certainly older than Christianity. Um. That was kind of an obscure historical anecdote, which I, I found to be really interesting. Uh, it comes out, it that came about as a result of uh, Chariots of the Gods being published by um, European author Eric von Daniken. And so many people have heard of Chariots of the Gods. Fewer people have heard of, um, I believe, Spaceships of Ezekiel is the, the book that uh, Joseph Blumrich wrote. Um, but so Chariots of the Gods was published and very popular, very sensational at the time, uh, got its own film as well. If you aren't interested enough to read the book, the movie's kind of interesting. Uh, there's a lot I could say about Chariots of the Gods, but it is important to acknowledge that ancient historians and archaeologists and anthropologists have more or less said that Eric Von Daniken's thesis in the book is, is kind of bullshit. Uh, for lack of a better word, that he, that he was very much derided in scholarly and, and academic communities. And I think there's evidence uh, that there's uh, things that Eric Von Daniken said in Chariots of the Gods which were factually untrue. There's evidence that I think portions might have been plagiarized. So um, th there's a lot that goes along with Chariots of the Gods. But um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the idea that extraterrestrials have visited human beings in the distant past isn't an interesting one. But uh, Chariots of the Gods addresses this, among other things, addresses this idea that Ezekiel, uh, the prophet from the Jewish Torah, witnessed uh, alien spaceships landing mm -hmm. on Earth. And that was, uh, that was where the claim came from, and that was the claim that Blumrich sought to dispute in uh, in the publication of his own book, and he just went down this rabbit hole where he studied it more and more, and eventually he was converted. Hmm. And it, it. it's such a weird thought to me to think that maybe there are extraterrestrials out in the world or in the universe mm -hmm. that um, they they visited us a long, 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 long time ago before recorded human history, and just saw what it was and decided never to return again or yeah um it's it's an interesting idea to me because it's an answer to the fermi paradox which is you know kind of runs that's that common thread that runs through 
um, you know, the first half of this podcast is what's the answer. And so the answer, the simple answer, is that they're visiting us now or they visited us at some point in the distant past. And it's a big if, but if you believe that to be the case, um, there's an argument to be made that maybe the reason they didn't come back wasn't necessarily uh, that they were offended or they thought human beings were inferior, but because the distances are so vast that it takes a long time to travel between star systems. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the program uh, quantum physics. You know, there's a lot of things at the cutting edge of theoretical physics about whether or not faster than light travel is possible. And that's still, you know, there's still a big question mark there. Um, But if you want to take a more conservative, more... um, more conventional approach to physics. Uh, most physicists, t- to my understanding, most physicists, most astronomers say that probably uh, the speed of light is this cosmic speed limit and that perhaps human beings or extraterrestrials could create spaceships that could go 99% the speed of light and travel extremely fast through uh, the universe, but that that's pretty much the cosmic speed limit. And so even at those, even going you know, close to the speed of light, it's kind of staggering to think how big the universe is and how it would still take a very long time to go a hundred light years or a thousand light years traveling, you know, at the speed of light. Although that's that's the crazy thing about quantum theory is that it's actually getting at that you don't need to actually be moving. You can literally blink into another location. And that's what's so uh, so difficult for current physicists to be able to figure out is how how is this possible in a world where I know this table is whole I know that it's not going to go through there but to also understand that the things that are holding this table together are blinking in and out of their their own existence and you can't predict or project um, with 100% accuracy where the the electrons are that are maintaining this this material sure and uh, I think it would, it would be good to add uh, the disclaimer if any if any of our listeners find that something that we're saying is uh, scientifically inaccurate. It would be good to add the disclaimer that um, neither myself or my producer Blake are scientists. I think we're scientifically literate people, um, but I don't have I don't have any formal uh, education in theoretical physics or mm. quantum th- physics, quantum mechanics. <laughs> um. What else did I write down? Reviewing our notes here. Um, then we talk, you talked about a, the Brookings Report. Can you go into more detail about that? Uh, yeah, it's actually, it would be kind of interesting to read from cover to cover. Um, what I mentioned is it's, it's a little over 180 pages long, I think 186 pages. And so most of the report, I think people would actually find rather droll, kind of boring, because they were trying to address some of the practical considerations of spaceflight, like this notion that in 1960, uh, the idea of communication satellites was really revolutionary, or spy satellites, or you know, the, the ways in which uh, artificial satellites would you know, revolutionize the world. Whereas if we read that today, you know, everybody is kind of aware of those implications today. So it was just how the space age was changing so many different things. And so only, I think only one or two pages cover the really juicy, really interesting stuff about, well, what if we made contact with extraterrestrials? And 
that's uh, the report has actually, to my understanding, fueled conspiracy theories because I think there's a, there's a line in there saying, well, we don't really know how the public would react to news of uh, that we had discovered extraterrestrial intelligence, and maybe it'd be good to um, keep it under wraps and not disclose it, and things. You know, people have kind of pointed to it as conspiracy theorists rather have pointed to it as the smoking gun of like this is this is clear evidence that the government is is hiding you know evidence that we've discovered aliens. And that's, you know, I, I love conspiracy theories, so I, I could discuss conspiracy theories all day. I think it's just important to uh, have, a, have a very firm line, you know, dividing. Here's what we know that has been scientifically proven, and here's just us going down the rabbit hole of, of speculating. Conspiracy theories are for another show. <laughs> right. Um, so that's all I had. Do you have any last thoughts about extraterrestrial life in the universe and what it was like putting this together i think i would just say that um seth shostak you know this guy with the seti institute says that within the next 25 years we could very well discover evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence and so i think it's important for us as individuals to prepare ourselves for that knowledge and i think it's uh more important for the government's of the world and the scientists of the world to be aware that this this is very revolutionary and it could be one of the biggest discoveries in human history and i think people have have just thought about and prepared themselves for it very little um all things considered and so you know some people might say "Ah, what what does that really have to do with my own life how does that can affect me personally uh but it could change you know it could change politics it could change uh, the way we view each other, the way we view conflicts in the world. There's a lot that could change. And so I think it's something that we need to better prepare ourselves for. That's the note that I would close on. Yeah. Not to, not if we aren't already creating our own intelligence here with artificial intelligence. Like, that's that's the, the, the creepy hole you go down when you start seeing <clears throat> what we're doing in robotics and all of that. Yeah, and I think something that people have mentioned before is that when us human beings wanted to explore within our own solar system and outside our solar system, we created the Voyager space probes, which are these unmanned robot explorers that we sent out. So it seems logical enough that if extraterrestrial exists, uh, they they might be sending out their own robotic explorers to different uh, far corners of the galaxy. And so if we do meet extraterrestrials, one day, it's possible that they could be uh, an artificial intelligence of some kind, rather than uh, little green men, rather than a biological entity. So Communicating in binary, not in language. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, well, you know, at the end of the day, uh, science and mathematics is sort of this common language that, um, that, every, that everybody, uh, presumably everybody in the universe would be conversant in this language. And certainly it's, it's a language that computers and artificial intelligence has a has an easy time digesting unless you're from another dimension with different rules for your all your <laughs> yeah so it's, a, it's i think that's a good note for us to end on okay well thanks mm-hmm.